This is an AMI podcast. I'm Joyita Gupta, and this is The Pulse. What does it mean to be a woman? Uh, for that matter, what does it mean to be disabled? If you are both a woman and disabled, where does that leave you? When we consider questions like, where do I belong? Or how do others perceive me? The answer is often shaped by complex social identities. Experiencing the world as a woman with a disability sometimes feels messy, sometimes joyous, but it's always powerful to make space for our unique stories. As women with disabilities, our experiences take place on the margins, even as we push back and retake the center. After all, for many women with disabilities, just existing is an act of resistance. Today, we discuss gender and disability. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. Hello and welcome to the program. I'm Joita Gupta and it's another show today and another book review. Today we're talking about Still Living the Edges, a disabled women's reader. And my guest today is the editor of the book, Diane Reger, who joins us today from Winnipeg, Manitoba. Hi, Diane. Welcome to the program. Hey, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Before we talk about the book, let's talk about its title, Still Living the Edges. Why did you go with that title? Well, just over 10 years ago, I published a book called Living the Edges, a disabled women's reader through the same press in Nana. And that was 2010. And I talked about how we as women with disabilities are constantly living on edges, peering over edges, being on the cutting edge, all those kinds of things. And I thought to myself, 10 years later, we're still living the edges. And I wanted to put out a new volume, which this is, most of it is new. There are a few updated articles. And kind of make the point that we're still here and we're still involved with edges. But as women with disabilities continue to occupy the edges or the periphery some 10 years after you first wrote your book, in writing this update, how were you feeling? I was feeling that we there were a lot of things that have happened within the disabled women's community that I wanted to you know, update people on. There are also a lot of women with disabilities who have not spoken that much and their voice hasn't been heard. Deaf women, uh, women who have dementia, many women who have mental health disabilities. And I wanted to include those now. And as these articles, essays, and poems, art came in, I realized that we still are on edges. But, to you know, we have involved to include more women with different disabilities in our society and we have evolved to maybe speaking out more which which is good it is a really good thing i was about to say in fact you read my mind one of the things that's interesting to me about examining the edges of the periphery of any situation is that often people who are so marginalized articulate resistance a position of resistance from those edges How much does the theme of resistance run through this book, would you say? Oh, I would say it is a thread. It's a thread. Because, of course, the women describe in many different areas of their lives how there are barriers, social barriers, attitudinal barriers, systemic barriers, physical barriers, 
to their participation and just being themselves. But the articles and the the poems and the art have edges to them which say, yes, this may be so, but we're speaking out about it. And the last part of the book, in fact, talks about change on the edges, the mm-hmm. different ways that women with disabilities are enacting change, whether it's on the Internet, through websites, uh, whether it's through the Disabled Women's Network of Canada, which has celebrated its 35th anniversary last year, whether it's by getting together in peer support groups, you know, whether it's doing theatre and highlighting disability experience, all of those uh, ways are being looked at as new ways to make change. And actually, I would say that 10 years ago, a lot of those different ways of making change were not being done because, mm-hmm. you know, we have more possibilities now through online and digital platforms, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's kind of evolved. The way that we can enact change has evolved beyond meeting together as women with disabilities and formulating on issues and presenting it to decision makers. Things have opened up in terms of art and literature and the internet and podcasts and there are many more vehicles for women with disabilities. Oh, for sure. Now, in the last part of the book, you say that that section really deals with the change-making aspect of it. But in fact, the book is divided roughly into four sections. Tell us a little more about what those sections are. Yes. Well, they, they kind of follow the sections of the first volume. first section is who we are on the edges, women talking about their identity as women with disabilities. And the second part is called Naming the Edges, and uh, barriers, that's about the barriers that stand in the way of us being fully who we can be in our societies. The third one is relationships on the edges. That is, what are our relationships with our families, our spouses, our children? What are our relationships um, in society? How do people see us even as taking on different roles and relationships? And then the final section is challenging the edges. And that's the chapter on the change about different ways of challenging how society does things. And in many ways saying, you know, a lot of the things that mm, people with disabilities need as accommodations are really things that everybody would like to have. Mm -hmm. For instance, Kelly McGilvery has an article in the challenging the edges section where she talks about slow work crip time um, and crip time is it's kind of like it's a new thing we're starting to talk about in the disability rights movement that maybe it may take us longer to do some things or we may do things in different ways and that our society has said we have to do things a certain way but maybe we don't We do things differently, we are creative, we adapt, and maybe our society needs to do a lot more of that because look at the situations that we're in right now, Um, Mm -hmm. COVID, pandemic, uh, climate crisis, perhaps, uh, of course, Black Lives Matters, missing uh, Indigenous women and girls, uncovering in the residential school situation, climate change, all of those things are 
you know, maybe we need to do things differently. And people with disabilities, women can sh- with disabilities can show us the ways to do things differently. You mentioned COVID-19. And just as you write the opening to the book, you say that you're looking out, your, out of your window, the sun is shining, there are clouds in the sky, and you reflect on the 18 months of writing the book, but you also reflect on the reality of COVID-19, how you're cautiously seeing friends and family again. To what extent did the pandemic force you to change your vision for the book? Well, it kind of, what happened is, um, you know, the book really was scheduled to come out in 2020. And because of COVID and, and many other factors, it took longer for it to be published. And during that time, I actually was able to add articles about what was happening in society. For instance, Nancy Hansen's article about whether it's worth uh, people being disabled people like her remaining alive because COVID is cherry picking, triaging who should live and who shouldn't when we're seeing that go on in Alberta right now. Nancy brings up the issue of what was going on, and that is she had heard that people with her disability were being triaged out in the UK. And would that happen if we have a case where we have to decide Mm -hmm. who lives and who dies? And, of course, that's going on right now in Alberta and Saskatchewan. Like, who who gets the ventilators? Who gets the resources, right? And... um, yeah, I mean, it's been, it's been a time when a lot of people with disabilities, women with disabilities, have just been thinking, wow, i got to keep safe, I've got to survive this pandemic, right? And a lot of people have been isolated and staying inside so that they will not uh, risk infection and have to deal with a system that may not think that their lives should be worth saving. It certainly sounds like the pandemic caused you to think a lot about the book and the need to evolve your your book and, and what it might actually end up looking like and sounding like and feeling like, Diane. I don't need convincing, but I am curious about what you would say to someone who says, well, Diane, the issues facing people with disabilities are more or less the same, irrespective of whether you're a man or a woman. Why focus on disabled women in your book? The experience is not the same. Uh, According to what your gender is, uh, you can have a very different experience. You do have certain experiences in common and certain barriers to your participation in common, but women in particular have a double jeopardy situation, right? They are women Mm -hmm. and they are discriminated against because they are women in our society and they are discriminated against because they have a disability. Men with disabilities are not dealing with that unless, of course, they have an issue with gender around if if they are gay, um, LGBTQ, then those issues would pile on top of that. But for women, we've really been in double jeopardy our whole lives. And a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of the leadership in the disability rights movement, which has been around for 40, over 40 years in Canada now, A lot of the leadership in the beginning, it was was men who started the organizations. 
and women were kind of carrying coffee back and forth, right? And the women had to, in a sense, demand from the men in the organizations that we have representation on the boards, that we are, our issues are important, those kinds of things. And in fact, in the mid-1980s, um, it came to a head where the Disabled Women's Network of Canada was founded. That is, disabled feminists said, we're going to have our own organization because men are not understanding our issues and we want to work on issues like child care, reproductive rights, you know, uh, violence, and Mm -hmm. the men think those issues are not important. And, of course, as I mentioned, Dawn Canada is still around 35 years later representing those issues. Absolutely. And, you know, we've had Don Canada on this program many times before. One of the things that I really loved about the book was the emphasis on intersectionality. So talking about being disabled and black and a woman being indigenous and and a woman and disabled, talking about the need to think through the transnational experience of living with disabilities. Tell me about why intersectionality was so important to you in putting this book together. Yes. Well, that is one of the things that was important to me in the first volume 10 years ago as well. And, uh, but uh, because of a lo- the events that have happened, you know, Black Lives Matter, the missing and murdered women's inquiries, residential school revelations, Truth and Reconciliation Commission, all these things, because we have become so very aware in the mainstream society, they finally become aware of these things. I wanted to make sure that I included those intersections that, you know, we have women, indigenous women with disabilities in the book. We have black women. um, We have black women from Zimbabwe and we have black women from the United States. We have um, Vietnamese women's projects talked about. Thuy Nguyen talks about how she's working on decolonizing the experience of women in the global south, disabled mm-hmm. women. So this one has become international. The first volume was only Canada, but now this volume includes women from oh six or seven countries. No, it's really great. And I was so pleased, pleasantly surprised even, to see Hannah Thompson included in, in the book. I had a chance to interview her a couple of months back on The Pulse, and we talked about blindness gains. So lots of really interesting content in the book. But there were moments in the book when I was reading an essay, and I was really drawn in because of the personal narrative. I can think of a couple of examples. There's the example of the of the rat, the woman who hears a rat scrabbling about in her wall and she uh, has a, a, a panic attack and she's dealing with all this anxiety in the middle of the night. And this really moving piece about a woman who trails her hand along the wall at the Center for you know, Addiction and Mental Health. And she's talking about you know being a psychiatric survivor and a really other compelling account about being a, someone who wheels through Montreal in the middle of a snowstorm. These personal essays obviously give us a glimpse into someone's inner reality, you know, Mm -hmm. their feelings, their emotions, their thoughts. But how do you as an editor also ensure that while they give us an idea about someone's subjectivity, they're also narrating or speaking to a broader systemic reality facing women with disabilities? Well, I think that the personal story tells us a lot about where people are at, right? And 
that has been one of the things that I have always emphasized in my work through the, the years with the disability rights movement and with the women with disabilities movement is that in telling our stories, the stories point to what the barriers are, right? Mm-hmm. It becomes obvious. I, I'm going to give the example of Kate Grissom's piece where she talks about how she and her best friend, who are both wheelchair users, were out for coffee and a woman stopped by their table and said, oh, you two are so beautiful. Too bad you're disabled. Right. And not at all surprising. I think a lot of us have that experience. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And that barrier, of course, is the attitude that disability is not beautiful. Mm -hmm. It's not acceptable. Or that it's it's almost like a bit of an oxymoron. It's like, wait, you can be beautiful and disabled at the same time? Like, what's going on here? It's very, that's very contradictory, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I wonder about is, you know, we talked about how, at least in the early days of organizing in the disability rights movement, all the leaders were men. And I'm going to go out on a bit of a limb here and say that in the feminist circles and in in that circle of organizing, all the leaders were probably able-bodied. I don't know if the book really, really gets into this, but I am curious about how the broader feminist movement, how effectively that has incorporated the voices and issues and concerns faced by women with disabilities? Yes. Well, there are two chapters written by women who are involved in Disabled Women's Network Canada. The first one that appears is by Pat Israel and Fran Odette, and they actually talk about this movement. When Disabled Women's Network started, they were delegates, they sent women delegates to National Action Committee on the Status of Women meeting. So that was the big national feminist group in the 80s, and that the meetings were never accessible. And in fact, Pat, who is a wheelchair user, and Fran, who are wheelchair users, they had to use the garbage elevators often to go to conferences. You know, like the the lift they used to take garbage up and down because things were not accessible. So, and and there was um, always the issue of, is there accessible media for women who have visual impairments? Is there ASL interpretation? It's like women with disabilities were talking, but they were invisible within the greater women's movement. And that is an issue that is still continuing. Uh, Dawn Canada has done a lot of work, uh, you know, with the women's movement in trying to educate and make sure that things are accessible. And some things are more successful than others, right? But it's like you have to continually remind feminists that, hey, we have women with disabilities over here. We are part of diversity. And that's even within other diversity communities, LGBTQ community, um, often the BIPOC communities, don't leave us out. Leave mm-hmm. people with, and women with disabilities out of their diversity pushes. It's like the word ableism is not one that is common in our vocabulary as a society. Yeah. I, someone once said to me, you know, people with disabilities are often the last to be invited to the disability party. Uh, tell me a little bit about, you know, you've written this book. I know you often teach from, you, you often use the reader as a resource when you're teaching. Who is your target audience? Who are you hoping will pick up this book and read it? Well, I hope everyone will be interested. <laughs> 
<laughs> in the public, whether you have disability or not disability, whatever gender you are. I want it to be accessible for everyone, and that's why there are the personal essays, there are poems, there there's visual art, and there are more academic uh, articles uh, in the book. And, and it, this really is the voice of women with disabilities. All of the authors are women with disabilities. All, you know, mental, physical, um, it's cross-disability, deaf, it's cross-disability. And, of course, I want the disability community to read it and, and uh, feel solidarity with these women. But also I want policymakers in government and community to read it. And it's also, as you pointed out, it's going to be it's a text in the course that I teach on women and disability at the University of Manitoba, where I teach disability studies. And I very much was thinking about that course when I constructed the book, that, you know, there are so few resources on disabled women's experiences in Canada, let alone internationally, that I wanted to try to include as many perspectives as I could when I did this book. I hope you won't mind engaging in a bit of a thought experiment. Let's fast forward 10 years. The pandemic is hopefully behind us. <laughs> You're about to update the book again. What is your hope or what are what are your hopes for women with disabilities? Well, my hopes are that women will not have as many difficulties getting accommodations, uh, particularly in the workplace. And, you know, COVID has shown us that flexible work and working remotely and meeting remotely works. And in fact, businesses are saying their workers have been more productive working at home. And frankly, this is an accommodation that I need for my disabilities, chronic illnesses, because I have Mm -hmm. fatigue and pain. And, you know, 20 years ago, I applied for a job in Winnipeg with a women's organization, got the job, and then was denied it because I asked to work part-time at home in a flexible work relationship. And it was because I had to be there in person to be part of a team. So now we see that COVID is changing that. And in fact, that lots of people would like to work at home. And that flex work is a good thing for a lot of people right? So this is one thing that has just changed in a very short time. And I'm hoping we'll just have more of that, that kind of thinking outside the box as to how we can all contribute economically and socially. Your body doesn't have to be there. You can, you can be coming in on Zoom, you can be on a telephone, you know, we don't always have to do things like we've always done them. And I'm hoping that 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 will hit home within the next 10 years as to how we all can benefit from doing things differently and including the perspectives of people with disabilities. And especially as our population in Canada is aging, and I'm part of the boomer generation which is aging, you know, The current census on disability from the federal government in 2017 told us that 22% of people identify as having a disability, mental or physical. That is up from uh, 17% in the previous census. And within the next 10 years, I I see that we are going to have even more disabled people because of aging, and I suspect we will be over 25% 
even close to 30% of our population in the next 10 years. So that means that there is a much larger group of people who will not be invisible and who will not be seen as add-ons, right? Oh, we forgot disability. Oh, we forgot the accommodations. Um, There'll be a lot more people who uh, will need those accommodations. Well, here's hoping that your predictions for the next 10 years come true. Diane, thank you so much for joining us today on the program. Thanks a lot. Diane Dreger is the editor of Still Living the Edges, a disabled women's reader, which is published by Inanna Press. And of course, you can pick that up when you have a chance and give it a read. Really enjoyed the book myself. I find, though, that when I was reading it, I really had to set it down. Like sometimes I can blaze through a book and read it in one setting. But with this one, so many great essays, so many, such a lot of great poetry, so much beautiful art to look at. You'll need to take your time with this one. If you missed any of my conversation with Diane, you can, of course, find the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Our technical producer is Nasreen Abdul-Majid. Andy Frank is the manager for AMI-audio, and Paula Deneen is our technical supervisor. Thanks a lot for listening. Stay safe and have a wonderful rest of your day. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca.